Welcome to the Brookie and Berger podcast. Uh, as always, it's great to have you listening and it's always great to have Darren Burgess. G'day, Burjo. G'day, Doc. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. Now, you've got one of your Crows buddies uh, along today. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about this. It's a, a slight left turn um, from the type of people we normally have on here, but uh, we have the, the head of leadership and, and development at the, the Adelaide Crows, which is a bit of a unique title um, uh, and a unique role in the AFL. Dan Jackson, welcome, Dan. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Good. It's great to have you, Dan. Um, I remember you as a, as a player, um, and for those who are not familiar with uh, with Dan's career, Dan played AFL football for the Richmond Football Club in the days when Richmond weren't such a good team as they, uh, as they have been in the last. I'm sure that's just coincidence, Dan. Um, but played uh, played uh, ten or eleven seasons, played over 150 games, um, won the Jack Dyer Medal, which is the uh, the, the top award at the club uh, one year. Uh, and I think came runner-up another year. Uh, was always a, um, a prominent player, fairly fiery uh, redhead. Uh, that's probably a reasonable way to describe you, uh, Dan. Um, but uh, always uh, a leader at the club and uh, very well respected within, uh, very involved in the AFL uh, Players Association and very well respected in, in, the, uh, in the industry. But we're, we're not really interested in your football career, uh, Dan, brilliant as it was. Um, <laughs> We're really more interested in what uh, what you did after football because a lot of people, we, we talk a lot on this uh, this program about uh, you know the the challenge of uh, transitioning from from uh, a playing professional sport into into the rest of life and uh, and you've had a very interesting transition. So take us through uh, firstly your decision to retire and then and then uh, you know your journey since then. Yeah, it can do. I, I think. My journey to here and what motivates me in the role that I do now at the Crows really did start back from when I was playing, but in particular from, as you sort of suggested then, when I retired. Um, I was I was 28, uh, just in, that was sort of end of 2014, the year before I'd won the best and fairest, the Jack Dye medal. So I was sort of hitting my straps as far as football was going. Uh, I had another contract for the, well, another year on my contract. Um, but basically I just decided to hang them up and leave the country um, because I was at the time I said it was physically I'd had enough. My body just wasn't allowing me to compete at the top level, which there was an element of truth um, to that. I was, I was beaten up, but I've learned now that you can push yourself a lot further. Burjo's, uh, I should have had him on my side. That would have helped. But to be honest, it was more mentally. I just was not enjoying coming to the club every day. I was really ruining having to play on the weekends. I, and I'd been through lots of highs and lows in my career at points where I thought I wanted to retire and give it up. And I'd sort of fought through that and it always led on to better things. But yeah, this end of 2014, we were supposed to play Port Adelaide in the prelim final. Oh, sorry, no, the um, elimination final on the Saturday or the Sunday. And I walked in on the Friday and told David Hardwick that I, was, I wasn't right to play and I was, wasn't right to keep playing um, at all. And so I then disappeared overseas for a number of years and I'll go through that in, in a sec. But um, a big part of sort of my leaving has brought me to where I am now, which is I'd hate to think that we'd ever have a player that does the same thing, that doesn't feel comfortable <laughs> in the environment to at least admit that they're struggling or, um, or even to mostly to, to, to be enjoying themselves. Like it's a hard, hard slog being a professional athlete, but um, I'm super motivated to try and make it a job that they can still thrive in some ways, even though they're going to have to be punished in, in many others. So 
that's sort of where the motivation comes from. The journey, I, I went, travelled for a while, lived a, a young person's life that I felt like I'd missed after 11 years of being a professional athlete, ended up working. I'd had a commerce degree from Melbourne Uni that I'd finished when I was playing. So I started working in some in a consulting role in Toronto, uh, over in Canada. And I very quickly realised as I went around to different companies with this business that I had no interest. I was sort of helping people with um, sales and strategic development. They had no interest in helping people make money. I was really intrigued about, well, why did this leader do this? And why does this team seem to gel really well and this team not? Because so I was just constantly looking at it through this lens of, of culture and leadership, but tied to performance. Um, and my visa ran out in Canada, so I jumped the pond over to London, as most Aussies do, and was, again, looking for sort of corporate work, but it was really dragging my heels. Um, and so just to make some money at the time, I started doing some talks and running some workshops at schools. I had a few uh, friends over in the UK who were uh, teachers, and so they'd sling me some cash, and I'd go in there and I'd talk about what does a high performer look like and what's a high-performance team made of and what is great leadership, mostly just speaking from my experiences as an athlete and then following my curiosity and the research I'd done. And I realized if I was gonna really cut a crust and make a career out of this space, cause I was enjoying it, talking to school kids the rest of my life wasn't gonna um, cut it. So I found this Masters of Performance Psychology at the University of Edinburgh, which was really just taking the best bits out of sports psych, organizational psych, less so around the mental health elements of psychology. It was more geared towards, completely geared to how do you help individuals and teams optimize their performance. So went over there, went down a rabbit hole in that and then started um, following that path. And without going into all the details, I did the standard job interview that a lot of people on Aussie Rules do. I was visiting Adelaide. My wife is from Adelaide. So at that point, we were just seeing each other and I was coming back and forth from London, went and had a beer with um, Matthew Nixon, Adam Kelly, um, and really enjoyed what their vision was for the Adelaide Crows. This was the start of 2020 when they just took over. Um, and yeah, long story short, they offered me this job looking after leadership and culture. And here we are. And they probably thought it was a really good idea to get someone from Richmond, a fabulously, you know, recently successful club. Uh, but uh, when you were there, it, it certainly wasn't a successful uh, team. I mean, uh, what have you learned from, I guess, observing Richmond, you know, and, and the change from when you played to uh, to their more successful recent era? Yeah, well, I mean, I've had a great line of sight in some ways because I've spent 11 years and five of those was with Damien Hardwick and the and the core playing group that carried through their premiership window, which is obviously still ongoing. Um, I disappeared at the end of 14, but as part of that masters, it was masters of science. So I had to do a research project and I hate quantitative data, which is why I always have a lot of respect for guys in your world who, who live and breathe that. So I went to something more qualitative and, and ended up going back and did a case study piece on the tags on their specifically on their culture change from 2016 through to, which was at this time, 2019. So, really concentrating on that flag in 2017. So I sat down with all the leaders and a number of the players. I was just able to hear um, their view of events and version of events from the period that I guess I'd been there, but more importantly, when they really went from 2016, when I think they finished third or fourth last into their premiership year the following year. And um, it, it was really insightful. The thing that I probably took from it most is that it gave me hope that football didn't have to be that grind that I'd experienced, that if you wanted to get the best out of people, and perhaps something we can talk about, I think my experience was the old school lever to get the outcome. And that's really what leadership's about. It's about driving outcomes. Was this, It was the fear lever or accountability done through fear. So there were companies like leading teams that would bring um, a consultant in from the outside, they would ask the question, how does this team want to be perceived? We'd get the same answers, which was they want to be ruthless and team first and hardworking. 
Uh, they'd have their own variation of the words, but often they meant the same things. You put it on the wall, we'd list the behaviours, and then we'd police those behaviours using mechanisms like group feedback. And uh, it, it certainly worked in the generation that were used to getting direct feedback in the early 2000s. You heard stories of different clubs who thrived in that kind of environment or culture. Um, but I, that, that was a big reason why I left. I just felt like I was constantly being policed as a 28 year old in an industry that didn't want to give any autonomy to the player. What I saw at Richmond after I left and what I've now seen across clubs, it sounds like at Melbourne. And um, I think look, the whole league's pushing this way now is it's a lot, a lot less about trying to drive behaviors and outcomes through fear and accountability, but getting genuine buying through connection and creating an environment where there's huge amounts of trust that so people don't want to let others down. And through that, you got have guys coming every day wanting to get better for all the right reasons, rather than trying to avoid getting themselves shamed or in trouble. Um, so that was probably the thing I took from Richmond. I think they really started to lead that paradigm shift in accountability. And where did that come from? Was that uh, was that Damon Hardwick? Do you think, or was it uh, from higher up, or uh, you know, can you pinpoint uh, you know particular turning point, or you know, how did things change? I mean, how did suddenly you know the whole sort of uh, attitude to culture and so on uh, change at at Richmond, and and then as a result, probably at all the other clubs. Yeah, I think it's a common leadership. I mean, leadership and culture of bedfellows. They, uh... It's a line I stole from a guy in the UK. They're sort of one and the same thing. So it started, I was good mates with um, P. O'Neill. I think she's a fantastic leader, huge amounts of humility, Brendan Gale the same. And that humility allowed them to weather the storm, I think, as a club in 2016, when the industry, particularly driven by the media, was saying, nah, you've just got to clear the place out. Of and this is the kind of stuff I love picking Burjo's brain on, just in particular in the in North, Northern Hemisphere sports with big money. If we want to change, if we want to get a different level of performance, we tend to just change leadership. Leadership comes in, they wipe the culture slate clean and they just go, right, we've got a new one. But my research on that and understanding experience is that really all you're doing is you're putting a new rug over a, a cracked foundation. And so you put a new rug in there, it looks really good. And then within a certain period of time, um, we start to realise something's still not right. And so what do we do? Oh, well, we'll get a new coach in and he'll, he'll fix it and it's a new rug. But I think the difference was, um, and maybe it's in Australia, we just can't afford to keep firing and hiring all the time and changing player lists and whatnot. So they actually looked under that rug and thought, oh, shit, there's some stuff um, going on here. So I think it started with um, Peggy and um, Brendan doing that, doing a proper analysis of what was going on. And then they identified there were some really great people, but there were some cracks in the foundations. Um, and then from there, helping those other core leaders. Damien Hardwick's been public about his journey of self-exploration as a leader and realising, you know, when he's at his best, what that looks like. Trent Cochin also spent a lot of time. Both of them worked with Ben Crow, who gets a lot of um, publicity now for his work with Ash Barty. A lot of introspection, a lot of reflection, a lot of, sort of delving into purpose and values and, and finding, really just answering that question, when they're at their best, what does that look like? Um, but you can't do that unless you have the stability around you. And this, I'd be fascinated. My wife's got an English passport, so I might leverage that and get back there one day because I'd be curious to test these theories and see who's testing these theories and say English football when you haven't got time to fix the foundations when really all you can do is get a fancy new rug. That's my understanding. Um, and so you get a new rug, hope that it covers up things pretty well. Uh, but I'm not sure if, yeah, if you guys have experience in if you can't get stability for leadership, can you get the culture change? Because it, it's a it's a slower burn, I think, to, to get that substantial culture change rather than just shifting um, talent around. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good point, DJ, and, and one that you made about, you know, Australian sport. 
having soft cap and salary cap and, and therefore not having the, the cash to, to sort of flash around. We do have a bunch of listeners from, from you know, the North American and UK market. So it might be worth just, um, just touching on that a little bit more in, in that, uh, and it might not be uh, Damien Hardwick or Frank Hutchin, but in terms of the, the, uh, the work that really good coaches um, both, um, you know, manager coaches um, and, and uh, staff, as well as players have done in your experience in, in trying to understand, um, you know, what makes the best version of themselves and, and the lengths that some of them have gone to in order to, to assist the culture and behaviours of their group. I think that would be a, a fascinating thing because you're right, in, in both mine and Brookie's experience, Overseas, it has been very much things aren't working. Change the coach. Oh, hang on, things still aren't working, um, and you don't get that time to to really delve into why they're not working. Um, so it'd be worth worthwhile getting your your experience and views on that. Well, I was yeah, I was thinking about your audience and how the stuff that I do intersects, and of course, the, if you go really deep into it, everything we do intersects because it's behaviour. But that was where I was thinking in my experience as an athlete working with high performance and medical, the guys that I had the best working relationship with were the ones where it wasn't a, you do this, I tell you, you do kind of piece. It was this connection to what did I value as a person and getting those behaviors to link to those values. So I prided myself as being a, a team first player who worked really, really hard. So if you came and talk, but I was, if you took one of my character traits, I was highly stubborn. Um, ask anyone that uh, has ever worked with me that I just never wanted to listen to what anyone else told me to do. But if you empowered me and helped me understand why you were suggesting we did this thing, then because I wanted to let help support the team and wanted to be looked at as a, a hardworking person, I would do two or three times as much work to, to um, align those things. And that's really, I think, when we look at what everyone does, it's behaviour change. So if you're in high performance and you're trying to get a guy to run faster or be stronger, you can tell them what to do or you can help shift their identity and then their behaviours just um, jump off the back of that. And that's really what I do. It's we want to get this collective identity shifted to a place that's going to help the team perform. And Matty Nix is amazing at this. He's the head coach of the Crows. I mean, he came in from day one and said, the number one philosophy you guys are going to have to live and die by or you won't last here is you're going to do everything you can to support others. So we had this philosophy of prioritising others. And really what he was doing, he was building a collective identity of help someone else before you help yourself. Because in his experience and again, his research, he's seen that great teams are built on selfless, built by selfless people. Um, and so then I was, you know, I was thinking, well, how do we all help play a part in that? Well, it's, if culture is just, I want to try and strip it back to saying culture is just a reflection of the way a particular group of people behave in a particular environment, then we all have the ability to influence um, any given culture, there's not just one person that comes in and says, right, this is what we're going to be. And the reason is because if you want to get those behaviours aligned to have a, a consistent culture, then the most powerful way to do it is to get people thinking the same way, get them on the same page, get them on the same mental model. So when even when you're not there as that core leader who might have been trying to set the direction of the culture, you're getting people behaving in that way because they their identity is attached individually to that collective and that's where I have yet to work out what's the shortcut without taking time I'm a big believer if you build genuine connections so we'll spend a lot of time telling stories um, we get we have a process 
most weeks when I manage to organise it, we do footy family friends on a Wednesday over lunch. So a player, a staff member, a coach, we'll just share some photos around those three core pillars of what we believe sort of shape the people in our environment. That's how is footy influenced who you are today? Um, how have your family influenced who you are? And, and, and similarly, your friends. And that's a, sort of the three areas that a lot of our people have, have spent the most of their life. And through that experience, all we're trying to do is, yeah, it's a nice way to get to know people, but it's helping understand why someone thinks that way. And once we understand why they think that way, we can help maybe connect on a more meaningful level to try and get them to think the collective way. And then when we, once we get the group thinking on more of a collective, consistent collective level, then we have a consistent culture. And so going back to, well, if we're in a sport where we don't have time to invest in genuine connection and we really have to win right now, I'm, I'm yet to work out what that hack is to go to get everyone to, to, to shift their identity to being, going back to the high performance model, that hardworking person. And maybe, Berger, you have a, a view on that because I've seen you do it at the Crows really quickly, your ability to get a collective identity for our group around um, don't just work hard, be a hard worker. And then that next level of that is, well, we are hard workers, we are fit, we can run. Um, yeah, I don't know, I, I guess I'll throw the, the ball back over your side of the net to see what your view is about getting that collective identity in a group. I think I think the point you made about um, explaining explaining why, and that's something that I I have only learned recently. Um, I don't want to say recently, the last sort of I guess five to seven years, um, and really getting to know. Uh, I think one thing that you've that struck me amazingly at the at the Crows is that that footy family and friends, and we really take the time to get to understand um, what what drives people. And I think once you know that, um, be it um, Matthew Nix or the doctor Peter Bruckner or you know the physio or whoever else is part of your team, once you know why they're here, um, then you can start to work on on that. And it's one thing just to line players up and make them run and and do all those those things that, that we used to do. Um, but I, I guess one of the things that I try and do is is really explain why we're doing this, how this is going to benefit, how um, uh, us as a team is is going to be um, uh, successful, what what role this particular area plays in you being successful, uh, and also how this might help you outside of the football field, um, how these behaviours that we're trying to um, to instill in you, whether that's, you know, being on time and respect to teammates and things like that, how that might help you away from it. So I guess um, I've, I've tried to look at it a bit more holistically just through my own experience and my own um, uh, research, I guess, in the area. Um, hopefully that, that answers your question, Dan. I feel like I'm on the podcast now. <laughs> oh, well, my, my, one of my key values is curiosity. So I try and lead with questions, but I constantly get caught telling stories. So I'm trying to train myself. Dan, uh, look, I think, you know, there's all sorts of people in a football club, all sorts of players, and uh, but invariably there's uh, players who come to your club, they might come from another club, they might be on a big salary or, or a big name, and, and and they're probably a little bit self-focused, um, not not just a little bit, very self-focused and and uh, and probably fairly uh, fairly selfish. Um, it's all about it's all about them. And um Give us an example of someone you know that that you've had to sort of tackle like that, and 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 how you'd sort of go about 
trying to sort of change their their behaviours and, and and their attitude because uh, I'm sure we all we all know you know players like that and every every club uh, whether you know wherever it is has those sort of uh, players and the challenge is bringing them into the fold if you like in the, in into the team and uh, what are sort of some of the things that you would uh, how you would go about that. You know, it's, it's something I've been wrestling with a bit recently, Peter. Not because any, there's any particular incident, but it's, I think it's a, one of the biggest challenges is trying to change someone who is set in their way. So I'm kind of a step removed from before that. We're really conscious of bringing, firstly, bringing in the right people. So I, even though I don't do X's and O's, um, you know, coaching tactics or look at technical as, as much as others, I make sure I sit on as many of the draft interviews as I can for guys that we're going to potentially recruit and look at it through that lens of character and, and cultural fit. Yeah. Um, and if I assess, and not that the decision is following me, but if I get a sense that I think a player is much more down that selfish lens, um, end of the spectrum rather than the selfless, I'll, I'll share that view and say, well, we need to do a bit more exploration as to do we think this guy is going to be out of shifties that that internal narrative is he even aware that that's um, that what that that's what he's like before we bring him in because in my experience and I've only been doing this role the Crows for a couple of years and we've got some I think the caliber of our group in regards to their character is really high I know we we Nixie made some tough calls early with some talented players and moved them on um, Dimmer did some similar at um, Richmond I think most great clubs have had to make hard calls balancing out that talent versus character so that's probably the first place um it's it, i'll risk stepping off sideways but um this piece around identity virgo shared something yesterday you know coaches often try and build a team around an i playing style identity and i think again in australia that can be really hard because we don't have the ability just to fire a bunch of guys and spend a whole lot of money to get the players that are going to suit that playing identity. We kind of get the 44 players that we have. And then because of all the restrictions of trade and, and soft caps and whatnot, um, it's, it's a very slow process to shift the talent of the group to then get the playing group identity that you want. And I think culturally, it's probably similar. You inherit a team, you as a coach are generally the curator of the culture. So you decide well, if it's going to be about selflessness, then we want to get players who are selfless but you can't get the gun out and go right you eight are gone and you eight are on warning because the reality is the league just doesn't the industry doesn't allow you to do that so then coming back to your question pete which is probably trying to buy myself time to work out i haven't yet solved completely i couldn't say with hand on heart this is how you're going to change someone's attitude i think for me i have an agenda or i have a belief a philosophy that yeah genuine connection will help get the most um powerful and long-term change so i think i always try and encourage um, senior coaches, coaches, teammates, a leadership group guys, to go in that with that. You've got two lenses you can look at it. You can go through judgment. Well, this player's behaving this way. And that's a story in your head that you maybe don't like selfish players. So you see an action, you go, yep, he's selfish. Don't like him. You tell a story. Or you can go that seek to understand that empathetic place and go, right, okay, what's, this, what's their story? So I've caught my story. I'm judging this guy because he's behaving in a way that doesn't fit with my values. Um, but what's his story? And once, you know, as Berger said before, getting to know what makes them tick, maybe you'll find out that he's had a pretty tough upbringing, has had to fight for every opportunity, wasn't in any, wasn't given opportunities and talent pathways, didn't go to that private school, uh, might have come from a single parent family where mum was working two jobs. So he had to catch the bus to training when all his teammates were getting dropped off and picked up. And it might have built this sense of no one's helping me, so I've got to do it for myself. And if you go through that lens of empathy and seeking to understand, I find then you can make a, a more genuine connection to start to bring them back to where 
the team needs them to be um, and addressing some of the root causes of some of that behaviour. Um, but that <laughs> it's not that easy. And send them off to, to a psychologist to try and do that, to try and find out some of that stuff. But even I find that's not generally that successful. I think those meaningful uh, relationships um, to have those authentic conversations. And this is where I, we were chatting on the sidelines yesterday, Virgil and I sort of admitted, I think the, mo the two most powerful places that you can address self in a football club and others, it's in the hot tub, it's in the spa, in the recovery room. Players will talk about all kinds of stuff, maybe not as insightful as what we're talking about now most of the time, <laughs> but sometimes. And then on the doctor and the physio table, like some of my greatest memories are on the physio table, just mm. hearing a lot of funny stuff, but also some intimate conversations around how guys are going and their upbringing and whatnot. So coming back to people on this podcast who um, one of our guys, Sam Dodge said, you know, the gym is a safe space for players to share who they are, to be who they are. I think that's really true as well. So if you're in strength and conditioning and you're able to have some of these meaningful conversations and you're asking questions to learn their story, and you identify that, oh, far out, this person's, this, you know, people are judging them for a behaviour, but I understand why that behaviour is, then I always encourage, go talk to the person in my position, talk to the senior coach, talk to the leadership group about maybe pulling the thread a little bit more to get a better understanding, because that person may not even realise themselves about their selfish behaviours. And going back to what I said at the start around, well, traditionally, we just try and beat it out of them. We say, hey, our rule here is selflessness and you're not meeting it, so we shame them. And what does that do? That just brings them more back into that. If we take that story I said before, yeah, see, the world's against me. You know, dad left when I was young. I always had to get the bus to school. And now this club's telling me I'm selfish and they're punishing me. And that just makes the whole thing worse rather than getting that metaphorical hug around them and helping them change that internal narrative. You that was a long-winded answer, sorry. <laughs> no, you're certainly right about the uh, about the physio table and the, and the massage table. And so I always say to the physios and the masseurs, you know, they, they have an incredible influence over uh, – over athletes, you know, they, they might have, you know, a masseur might have, you know, half an hour twice a week with, with a particular individual. I mean, who else has that sort of uh, time with, uh, with someone? And, uh, and I think they play a really important role and that's why it's so important to have good people in those, uh, in those positions and people who understand the influence that they have, but enormously influential. Yeah. And maybe that's, yeah, I think they, we don't even, sorry, but there you go. Oh, no, I was just going to add to that. Um, they're influential to lend an ear, but also um, to, to continue on the message. I think that's really important. Like, I think one of the, the great links of a football club can be different staff members uh, trying to be um, friends with the players and, and lend a friendly ear when perhaps uh, a not-so-friendly ear might be uh, might be required. And, and rather than being, you know, friends with a superstar, who's just been dropped and he's saying the coach is no good and, you know, the doctor's no good because the doctor's ruled me out or whatever it might be, you know, to, to um, not comment on those things, to, to toe the sort of club line and, and steer the conversation in another direction. Um, I think that's some of the, the really good physios and masseurs and strength coaches that I've worked with have been able to do that without necessarily causing a, a sort of a leak in the chain. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Virgin. We probably, I haven't been a part of a club that necessarily does that super well. And that's not a reflection of the, the physios and, and the trainers. It's a reflection of the higher, the leadership, not actually going to them and helping check in with them, empowering them, training them to be able to have those conversations. Because it can be really hard, you know, that example of the, the star player and the senior player sitting in the medical room, being frustrated at a, a coaching decision whether that be about them or someone else and they're just doing what young people, young men do and they're chatting about it. 
the ability to be help be a part of that conversation, make that a productive conversation, and maybe encouraging them to actually go. And, most of the time, it's just encouraging someone to go and address the person and have an honest conversation. Go and see whether it be the coach or the doctor and say how you're feeling. And more often than not, an honest conversation will solve most problems. But I think that's something I'll certainly go away and consider more is how do we empower people in those positions to have the positive influence that we know they can. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, someone lying on their jocks on the table for half an hour is in a pretty vulnerable position. And that's maybe what leads to a lot of those vulnerable conversations. So it's not about um, leveraging that power. It's actually about leveraging that opportunity to, to, to be real and to, to help that person and the collective environment at the same time. Well, I think the other thing, the, the point that you mentioned about the, the superstar players, DJ, I'll use an example of uh, Manchester United, you know, 15 years ago and Sir Alex Ferguson. And, and it was very much, um, from my understanding, my conversations with the staff at the time and, and some players, very much cultured by, um, by managerial, you know, influence, um, more so than most. And perhaps it's happening at Manchester City and Liverpool and, and places with really um, uh, strong character, character leaders. Um, However, what the, the thing that used to amaze me um, with with Manchester United is, uh, from the outside, if a player wasn't part of the culture that um, whoever was trying to create, um, they would just let them go. And you know, at the peak of their powers, uh, Ronaldo, Van Nistelrooy, David Beckham, they were all let go or, or sold, um, even though they were still incredibly. Um, effective contributors on the on the field, and yet the, the very next season of all those three players, Manchester United won the league with theoretically a weaker team. Um, so it, it really did show that um, one one leak um, can really influence the dressing room, um, no matter how talented they are. And I've sort of been part of dressing rooms, um, obviously on the outside of dressing rooms, where the, the real high talent players um, drain the resources of both the staff and the players. And when those those players left or were sold, uh, the team went went better, even though the talent was was um, was less. So I don't think we should be afraid of making those decisions um, with a with a betterment of a team in mind. But too too often clubs, you know, hold on to those players because well, they're still a talented player. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think that sort of lends weight to to your comments earlier, DJ. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I guess that's the problem with um, when people look at performance in the lens of culture. It's hard to quantify. And the, the two sort of ways I've been trying to make it more quantitative. Uh, Owen Eastwood does a lot of state based out in Parkland, done stuff for the English football teams, written a great book, Belonging. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it now. I highly encourage. I think he encaptures a lot of what I'm talking about. Um, his little equation that I'm sort of saying it's a way to quantify culture and performance is, well, if we agree that an environment, any given environment, i.e. culture, as I said at the start, can influence a person's hormonal state. So if someone comes into an environment which is fear-based, so we're getting that accountability through the fear mechanisms, then they're going to have higher cortisol, their testosterone might drop down, they're going to have lower levels of serotonin and oxytocin and all the things that we know sort of the basic level of um, human hormones and Whatnot. If we know that those things influence performance, and Darren, that's your area of expertise, but a lower testosterone and higher cortisol, that's going to get, and Peter, that's more likely to lead to injury, lower serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin, well, that's going to lead to whole things like disconnection and unhappiness. The cognitive effects of that, well, the brain's going to be thinking about a lot of threats, so that 
cognitive capacity is diminished. And so we're relying on um, the other parts of the brain, which for an older player might be okay. They might be able to perform whilst being distracted because they've got a lot of muscle memory and they go out there. But for a team like ours who's really young, that would have dramatic effects because they need to be able to think rationally through all areas of performance. So all of a sudden, if we say that the environment impacts the physical state hormonally, and that's going to impact cognitively and physiologically, well, then we have a direct connection, um, correlation. I'd love to get someone in, we'll have to chat about this, Burjo, to, to test, to do blood testing, to test all those different markers and say, okay, well, on a day like, um, we, we had a great day yesterday, even though we'd lost on the weekend, there was a real positive energy. Our group seems to thrive and work really harder when they're positive. If you took blood markers around all that and tracked their GPS and their strength outcomes, um, their, you could get them to do a subjective um, well-being rating as well and you go okay with this we show with high levels of testosterone this level of cortisol we're gonna have a little bit of stress we get great outcomes and then do it on a day when the group's really flat and see how they perform and go okay we could actually then very realistically quantify the optimal state physiological state for our group um, is this and then we can build an environment that leads to that now, i don't know if anyone's in that space um, just yet but i think realistically that's what we're trying to do is create that optimal environment for guys to go there and thrive. And that'll be different depending on the group. So going back to, if you have someone who's a key star player, who's got a very, very strong character um, and you put them into the group, and this would be across any walk of life. When you think about at school, there was the bully. If the workplace, there's someone who's the star salesperson, but no one really likes, but he sells a lot. He or she sells a lot. That can influence that hormonal state of others when they walk into the room or out on the training track and they start throwing jokes and jives at people and then their cortisol goes up and their testosterone goes down and all the other things can impact it. Well, there's your impact on performance. So yeah, taking out a star player can help that collective um, group optimal state and then you get that great performance even though people from the outside go, geez, how are you winning without him in there? Um, so maybe we just need to get some more scientists in place a few sociologists and do some research to work out what's happening in the background when 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 teams either do or don't make decisions on star players in a particular environment no, i think the closest um and it's what, what i like about that dj is linking the physiological to the to the outcome uh, um through the emotion um there's some some really uh, influential research from uh, christian cork on some rugby players in new zealand where uh, his team looked at um, hormonal response to recovery and various forms of recovery. And essentially they found that um, the recovery that you think works best and you like the most uh, had the best physiological effect. So what, you know, what I've taken from that since, and that was, that was done a long time ago, is I said players absolutely hate the ice bath. So why would you put them in there when you're actually aiming to recover? Even though, you know, some research says that ice parts work, why, when it's the most stressful period of an athlete's day, would you put them in there? So, you know, that's the closest research that I know. Certainly a lot of heart rate variability stuff coming out at the moment talks about all cause stress and its influence on performance, both in the workplace, if you're, you know, a lawyer or, you know, whatever, um, and, and you're an athlete. So there is research out there that links the, the physiological to the emotional. Um, but just not quite in, in that realm, but it's a, it's a fascinating area. Lots of rabbit holes we can go down. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Dan, you, you mentioned that, uh, that the Crows, the team you're with at the moment, is a very young team. So where do you, where do you see your main role um, in, in this sort of leadership and development uh, position that they've, they've, uh, 
got you in. I mean, uh, what's your greatest challenge uh, with a young a young group like uh, like the Crows? I think um, to answer the role, my role in it is in particular through that leadership and culture culture lens. I've always thought, and and even said, if I do my job well in a couple of years, I'll make myself redundant at least in that area of what I do because. As I said earlier, leadership and culture are basically one and the same thing. You you build a culture, a person comes in, they adopt those behaviours because their identity starts to mould with what we've created, as we discussed earlier, um, and then the wheel turns a bit more. Now, those as you bring in different people, they'll shift and change that group identity, and therefore the culture will evolve. That's one thing I've learned, that culture evolves. It's never static. Uh, but really, that wheel just keeps spinning. People come and go. They, influ- they get influenced, and they influence. So my sort of main role at the moment is just trying to build that leadership capacity of our uh, playing group in particular. I spent a lot of time with our senior playing uh, lead, senior playing leaders and also the younger players to try and build out rather than just say we've got one great leader, which we have, Rory Sloan and some others. It's kind of the rising tide raises all boats philosophy of investing in all the players to make sure that they've got leadership capability because that then in turn is going to support this culture that Nixie and Adam Kelly and now Darren are trying to build. Um, so if we can get that to a place where it's self-perpetuating, then I kind of hopefully can just sort of step out and and monitor that part. Um, so that's on that side. And then with the development role, like we've got a great team now. We work much more collectively as a team. So we've got a, a head of football development. We've got two different people look after player welfare and, and education and personal. We've got a sports psych um, that sits in there as well. So I think we've got a lot of scope to improve what we do. And I've been chatting to Darren a bit about, well, we don't use an AMS to, to track and measure how we're developing over the long term. We've got a lot of sort of static processes that can help identify where a player is at at the current point in time. We put goals in place and behavior plans or action plans. Uh, but we've got another level we can go to using the analytics to actually show over a five-year career, this is what this player did. And then using that data to influence when we get a similar type in 2025, or we can model them on a Lachlan gland or whatever it might be. Um, so that's an area I think we're driving towards on the, on the development side. As far as challenge goes, I think it, leadership takes time because if, if you are going to go through that, that approach of building character, it helps when you bring in a guy like Geordie Dawson. So we recruited a a guy from um, Sydney, he's from South Australia, so he uh, wanted to come back to South Australia. We were fortunate enough to grab him. He brings with him a whole lot of traits, characteristics and experiences, even though he's not still young himself, that just makes my job a hell of a lot easier. Um, but yeah, one of the challenges is we just have a young group and they're exploring who they are and um, how they can have influence. I mean, even my own personal experience, you draft a player, the first few years, it's just about you. It's, I just need to survive. And then it's, they evolve to the next stage, which is, okay, well, I want my peers, I want my friends to, to do well. So you and you and you and me, we need to do well. And then it becomes, okay, well, I want my line group to do well. And then that final evolution, well, maybe the second last one is I want the team to succeed in the final one of maturity is I want this whole club to be successful on and off the field. So where we at the moment is just trying to fast track our guys to stop being about me, which is just natural. You come to this environment, you've been drafted, you want to perform it. There's no, there's no judgment on that, but it's getting the shift to from me to we. And that's probably the, the biggest challenge at the moment. And that's not a reflection of, of the te- people that we have. It's just a reflection of where they are. But we're seeing some great signs from some of our younger guys when it comes to their selflessness and their high performance characteristics that we're looking to build but they're just going to need time to um to get there and what i'm learning is even though richmond was a big club and it was a big club in a big city that has lots of other teams and lots of other interests whereas adelaide is two-team town and everybody wants to talk about football so patience is not one of the virtues that this town they're very passionate 
it's one of the best things about Adelaide and, and their football fans. Um, but it certainly adds an element of pressure to get them uh, to get us performing as quickly as everyone else expects, which may not be necessarily realistic all the time. Dan, Dan you mentioned. Uh, yeah, I think there's a. There's Don- a- Go on, Berger. Go, you, you go, Doc. Well, no, you mentioned uh, your interest in, in uh, maybe, you know, looking at an overseas uh, position at some stage or seeing if you could have a similar influence on uh, something like the uh, the English Premier League or the NFL or, or something like that. I mean, uh, what do you see as sort of the, the additional challenges? I mean, uh, you know, obviously this sort of, approach works in in an Australian uh, football environment um, what what are the sort of uh, I guess the blocks to it working uh, in a you know in a high profile international sport such as the, the NFL or the Premier League yeah well I haven't had I've had a little bit of exposure to some Premier League academies and did some little bit of work at Southampton and Man City and Crystal Palace so I got to see firsthand that there's a huge difference team by team, even in that one league, whereas I think in the AFL, and that was only the academy system too, I think in the AFL, there's a lot more, it's a lot more homogenous with the way um, the league is run and and how people operate. Um, When I lived in Canada, I got to know a few uh, professional hockey players and some people through the NHL Players Association. So having a look at them, I think, again, they're more probably similar to us uh, in the AFL, that Canadian influence of how sport goes. I've, I've never had a look under the hood at, at NFL or NBA. Well, I suspect the biggest challenge would be that that pretty standard response in the industry, with, which ends up being, well, why do you do this? Or it's just how I've always done it, whether people admit it or not. So I think getting leaders who are open to a player empowerment model, who want to spend the time to build genuine connection and and use that lever of, of care and trust and and, and um core belief rather than just doing the old school approach. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of anecdotal evidence that, you know, in the NFL, there are coaches that are that are doing that, um, perhaps less so in the EPL. I just think the biggest challenge in English football or in most football is that they've not given the time, like the tenure mm-hmm. of coaches is so short. I just don't see how they would fit that in. So it's probably unrealistic. If I was to go to the UK, it might be more likely to go to premiership rugby. I think there's a lot. I've got an old mate who um, is at Harlequins at the moment. They seem to be doing some great stuff. The Saracens have always been spoken of as looking after their players and creating an environment where they can thrive on and off the field. And they seem to have great results consistently, albeit with a few little asterisks around salary cap breaches. But... <laughs> Um, yeah, I think if I was to go, there'd probably be less about influence, Brookie. It'd be more about um, learning, you know, going over there and hopefully having the humility to go, well, I hope I can help, but I know I can learn and whether someone would take me on to, to do that. But there's no rush. I'm not leaving Adelaide for five or <laughs> 10 years. I've just settled here and bought a house. I love the environment, but I think one day, um, nothing, you never last in, in uh, professional sport in one place forever. Hopefully we can have a reign of three or four premierships and I can last as, as long as I can. But when that time comes, I might look to go do something different like that. Bridget? Well, we, we're, we're running out of time, um, but I wanted to get your thoughts on one, I guess one of the, um, maybe the nuances, I'll even go so far as to say the weakness of the whole sort of connection, empathy um, wave that's coming across elite sport and, um, is the fact that when it comes to the crunch, you still need to be able to perform under the under the big lights and the big stage. Um, how does because uh, there there are examples of teams that that we know certainly in the AFL who are the most connected teams you know going around, but when it comes to um, 
the crunch, they're just not, they just either crack under pressure or they're just not quite good enough or um, those real high intensity, high pressure moments, uh, they come unstuck. Um, how, how can you link what you do to, to the fact that at, at the end of the day, I can really love you as a fellow workman, Dan, and as a fellow teammate and empathize with your upbringing and your motivations and your behaviors are exemplary, um, but you still need to get it done. Where does your area, and it's our area, but I'll say your area, um, uh, influence that aspect or can it? Or is that just the domain of the coaches, you know, the other coaches? No, I think absolutely. And remiss of me for not bringing that up earlier because that's probably one of the biggest um, faults of the space that I work in. And we get a lot of people that push um, this connection piece um, down the wrong, they give it the wrong, people look at it through the wrong paradigm. They go, oh, it's just about creating a place where people can feel good and feel happy. Whereas, and, and really, if you want to go into the science point, you look at all the research, um, in psych safety and then you can get a lot of sort of more of that research-based evidence around what connection does to high-performance environment and no one ever in that space has ever said that it's just about creating a happy space where everyone can be joyful and relaxed and whatnot the whole reason you want to create an environment that's underpinned by psych safety is so you can have those hard conversations in high-pressure um, environments like in a sporting field. A lot of the research came out of the medical industry and surgeons in, in theatres um, performing surgery. The ability for people to challenge, to question, to query um, you know, leaders in the room, i.e. surgeons, it's very similar, I think, in a sporting sense, the ability for a player to challenge a teammate in the heat of battle um, because they don't believe they've executed a game plan or the vision of what the coach is looking to do. Um, so that's probably something yeah, that you need to clarify when I go in and work with a team or anyone in, in this who wears this hat. It's we're not just trying to create a kumbaya environment. We're actually trying to create collective resilience so that when we are challenged, and, it's, and you, you don't want to say feelings are hurt, but that's really what it is. If you start to get cracks in that connection and someone does challenge someone else, it can make that crack worse. And then you might get mistrust or you might get animosity. You might get an outcome in the short term. But over time, you're probably going to get not going to get optimal performance um, out of that group. So, yeah, I think what can what can we do? That, that's probably where we're at now. I reckon Berger, our group collectively has admit, admitted that their next working edge, the big piece, is their ability to demand more of each other and challenge. We haven't got characters necessarily in our group that are very confident in doing that because they're young, they haven't had that experience, and it's trying to find ways to empower them and make them feel comfortable that that is a core part of what's connections about that if you're not prepared to challenge someone on a behavior then you're actually letting them down because they're not going to be able to be at their best without that feedback or support so i think yeah something we're definitely working on here i'd be interested to see at melbourne because like, it sounds like darren from your experience that they had a great ability to challenge each other at the right times and in the right way um Richmond and I had less, less line of sight, but I know that leaders like Jack Rewalt were very good. They were so passionate about the team's success that his, when I was there, he was probably um, given the feedback that he was too direct. And then maybe through that evolution of finding more ways to show that empathy and care, he found a really great balance. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if you have your experiences with Melbourne to share. Yeah, I think I think one of the advantages of the, the Melbourne scenario is you had, um, very challenging leaders and a, um, a wide variety of leaders. So within that leadership group, um, no one was necessarily more influential 
than the other, but there were players um, who who were really empathetic and would put an arm around and and really try and understand. But there are other um, other leaders who were were far more challenging both on and off the field, and and particularly at training, driving standards around training. And I think that was the advantage is, um, uh, and they really did assign players to, um, or assign leaders to players depending on their um, their needs and their traits. So if somebody needed a, um, a firm word, then, then a certain leader would go and deliver that. If somebody needed a friend, then a person who had a good connection would deliver that. So it really was a, a, a really nice balance. The interesting thing um, for me, DJ, and I, I know we're going to finish up, but um, I was lucky enough to also be involved in, in Western United uh, A-League team who, who won last year as well. So it was nice to um, have the, the dichotomy of, of, of leadership because within that soccer model, it was very much the coach who led the behaviours. Um, you know, we changed coaches and and he led the behaviours, whereas at the D's, it was very much the players. Of course, the coach was heavily influential, but it was very much the players' team. Um, and they they had the strength to, to have those difficult conversations. And that's probably, as you said, something that um, at the Crows now we're, we're working through. So I think both models could work. Um, it's uh, perhaps the sustainability of each. And I, and I think the, the, the Melbourne model might um, be a bit more friendly to players than, than having a coach um, determine the culture. Well, I think the other thing too, maybe this aligns to that identity piece. If you're a coach and that this is this Toulouse example you were speaking about, Virgil, um, if you're a coach that has a clear idea of the identity of the, of the way you want the team to play, and then you go and recruit a bunch of players from around the world that can play that way, well, then you're setting yourself up for success. As I said earlier, it's hard to do that in, in at least in our industry because you can't shift and turn. But if you're a coach whose philosophy on a high-performing culture is about ruthlessness and it's just you're candid with everyone and you work really hard and it's you know it's it's old school like it's stereotyping to say that the generation is one way but it that's how you would, people people would probably understand it. If you went and then recruited a bunch of guys who were just cut out for that kind of environment who would happily be yelled and screamed at who will throw themselves in the mud at first first request who will just do anything you say they want to do they've got they don't want to hear about emotion. They don't want to talk about their footy family, friends. They don't want to, anything kumbaya. Then that is the right culture for you. The only reason I go, I'm going more and more down in this um, belief or pushing that connection is going to help is because that seems to be where this younger generation are. They just grow up in a world where they're not, they weren't smacked as children. And not that I'm promoting we should go back to that, but outside of the the angry streak that I had, it might have, I, uh, I, the wooden spoon every now and again kept me well behaved. Um, they, they don't get given stern feedback at school. Like we, we, like you hear these crazy stories about what kids, kids can and can't do in the playground anymore. We protect them, this generation of lawnmower or helicopter parenting, either paving the path or pulling the child out of any harm. Well, we've just created a place where they need to be nurtured and they need to be cared for and they need to know they're loved. If, if we went to World War Three and we just had to, we had to shift a society to get more ruthless individuals that could go in there and, and be warriors, then I'd go down the path of working with head coaches and saying, don't worry about connection. We just need to have ruthless accountability at this place. Um, and maybe that's probably a good place to finish on is if, if we're running out of time is that there is, I would never say there's one way to build a high performance culture. There's your way 
And that comes back to, you need to understand everybody's, what are their stories? How do they see themselves? So what are the, what's that identity that we spoke about earlier? And then collectively, what can we create um, from that? Because if you don't seek to understand and you just try and create an environment and all your people aren't like that and their narrative doesn't connect with your narrative, it just won't work. Because people will always go back. Yeah, that's what Brookie was saying earlier. I had asking earlier. I, I, I don't know how you shift someone so far to be someone that they're not. I don't think it's possible. And that's why that recruitment and retention and transitioning of the right people and the wrong people, I think, is probably more important or more impactful. Um, if I work out how to crack the code, turn, turning a selfish person into a selfless one, and genuinely, I get them to go from one end. I'll certainly get back on the podcast and let you know, but that might be after <laughs> I've written a book and done a TED talk and bought a big house yeah. in New York because I think someone will pay me a lot of money if I can work that out. Exactly. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, Dan, it's been great. We did say, yeah. mate, um, that, yeah, that we could talk for three or four hours and one wouldn't be enough yesterday uh, on, the, on the sideline. But, um, yeah, we'll have to... What end it there, Brookie? Yeah, look, I really appreciate your time, uh, Dan. It's been fascinating. I've, I've really uh, enjoyed it. And, and as you say, we could go on for for hours. We might have to uh, might have to get you back when you've uh, solved that uh, that problem, uh, Dan. But uh, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners have uh, learnt a lot and uh, and had some really thought provoking uh, ideas put before them. So uh, we really appreciate it and wish you all the best in this uh, in this role at the Crows. No, guys, it's it's my honour, really, uh, humbling to be invited uh, onto the podcast. So, really, yeah, really appreciate. It. Look forward to chatting more, Brookie and Berger. We'll chat on Friday. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> no worries, mate. Thanks, Dan. Thanks a lot. And he'll make-